in the book of Genesis. And just open your Bible and uh, you get past the table of contents. There's probably an introduction that tells you that this book is, in fact, the Bible. And uh, then you'll get to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And we're going to look at the first two verses uh, today, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I've entitled the uh, this entire series on the book of Genesis, The God Who Is There. And that is also the title for today's uh, message. As uh, I think Genesis, uh, while it covers lots of events and lots of people, ultimately if it's about God and what he does. So let's read Genesis 1, the first two verses. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. And Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we pray you would give us understanding of this most foundational passage in the Bible. Help us to learn more about you this morning and about what that means for each of our lives. For this, we need your grace, and by your Spirit, we ask that you would give this to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. On August 7, 1961, a 26-year-old Soviet cosmonaut named German Titov became the second Soviet to orbit the earth and return safely. And sometime later, he recounted his experience while speaking at the World's Fair. And in a very triumphant manner, Titov declared that on his excursion into space, he looked for God, but didn't find him. Of course, one commentator humorously quipped, had he stepped out of his spacecraft, he surely would have. <laughs> But this was a very deliberate attempt, if you think of the context of the early 60s. Uh, Titov had uh, moved beyond the discipline of uh, technology and technological gain to draw theological blood, so to speak. One great step for science became a much greater leap in philosophy. Now, years later, on Christmas Day in 1968, and this I actually remember, which means I'm old, um, there were three American astronauts, the first human beings to go around the backside or the dark side of the moon. And so as they came around the other side of the moon, uh, they saw Earth rise over the horizon of the moon, draped in a beautiful blend of blue and white, decorated by the glistening light of the sun against the black void of space. And captured by the awe of that moment, they echoed the only words that seemed fitting to them, and those words were from the first line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You have two similar experiences of awe and splendor, yielding two diametrically opposed conclusions. And these two incidents carried into space the most debated question on earth, does God exist? 
And the answer to that question has uh, actually uh, a greater bearing on your life than anything else. Personal and national uh, destinies are bound to this issue. Our entire moral frame of reference is determined by whether or not God exists. Our purpose in life is determined by that, whether are we here by design or are we the accidental collection of atoms. Who we are and why we exist logically flows from the question of God's existence. But before we dive into the simple and easy subject of God, perhaps we should stop and ask, what does the book of Genesis contain? What is in this book? See, it was the custom in ancient times to name a book by its opening word, which is what the Hebrews did when they titled this book uh, Bereshit, which means in the beginning. That's In Hebrew, that's one word, in the beginning. In English, it's three words. And when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, about 250 B.C., the Greek equivalent of the title, all of our titles of our uh, Old Testament books come from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and they gave it the title Genesis, which in both the Latin and English translations have adopted, and it's actually a perfect title. It gives us, um, this book gives us the Genesis, which means the beginnings or the origins of the doctrine of God, which rose to tower over all the pagan notions of the day, and that's very important for this book. Uh, it's also the genesis of the doctrine of creation, which likewise rose far above all the crude mythologies of the surrounding nations. Genesis gives us the doctrine of man, demonstrating that from the beginning we are both wonderful and awful. Hope that's not new news to anyone. Uh, the doctrine of salvation has its genesis in the Garden of Eden and its grand development throughout the whole book and, of course, throughout the whole Bible. All of which, if you think about it, is astounding. What we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, and about salvation begins in Genesis. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands. And Jesus, the Messiah, uh, has his prophetic message, his Genesis, in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. So the importance of the book of Genesis cannot be overstated. The theological arguments of Romans depends on Genesis. The arguments of Revelation, which we just finished a while ago, depends on Genesis. In fact, you will see there's a great number of connections between the two books. And at the same time, as deep and heavy and weighty as the book of Genesis uh, can be, it's not a dry, boring textbook. Its narratives of the garden, the flood, the Tower of Babel have uh, captivated hearts for um, over three millennia. It's provided inspiration for uh, all of the world's greatest poetry. And the earthy, epic lives of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and Egypt, are primary and universal, and they're so skillfully told they've never ceased to fascinate listeners. In the last decade of the 20th century, the opening years of the 21st century, have produced a renewed interest in the narratives of Genesis, 
We even have a PBS special uh, about it, and the numbers of books on the shelves of the bookstores uh, tell us that Genesis is in as literature. Now, traditionally, the authorship of Genesis, like the rest of the Pentateuch, and Pentateuch's the name given to the first five books of the Bible, well, the authorship has been credited to Moses. The other books of the Pentateuch uh, relate Moses' life and his role in bringing Israel to the borders of Canaan, and parts of these books are expressly said to have been written by Moses. Genesis is clearly an introduction uh, to the books that follow. It's natural to suppose that if Moses was responsible for those books, he must also have been the author of Genesis. This understanding of the Pentateuch's origin is the view that Jews and Christians from uh, earliest times until the 19th century uh, held, and then in the 19th century, Mosaic authorship came under attack by liberal scholars. Uh, Gladly, uh, in more recent years, they seem to have been discredited, and outside of liberal circles, uh, most Bible-believing people have returned to the historic view that these books were written by Moses. The, the book of Genesis is amazingly written just as a literary document. It's fascinating. Um, it basically, it, it's very neatly structured. There's essentially two halves. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 cover what we call primeval history, the early history of the world. And then chapters 12 through 50 cover patriarchal history, the history of Israel's founding fathers, so to speak. Genesis starts with the stories of what happened in the world before the time of the patriarchs and and then focuses on four particular patriarchs. Interestingly enough, each half of the book focuses on four events or four people. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 11, containing uh, that primeval history, concerns four great events. The creation, Genesis 1 and 2, the fall and its aftermath, Genesis 3 through 5, the flood, Genesis 6 through 9, and then the events surrounding the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11. The second half of the book covering patriarchal history also focuses on four things. In this case, the lives of the four great patriarchs. Abraham's mentioned the end of Genesis 11, and he's the bridge between the two halves of the book. And his story is told from Genesis 12 up through Genesis 20. And then we go to his son. We focus on the life of Isaac from Genesis 21 to 26. And there's a natural overlap between these uh, various patriarchs. And uh, But then Jacob, uh, Isaac's son, we get from Genesis 27 to 36. And then the book concludes with the story of Joseph from Genesis 37 all the way to the end of Genesis 50. So once you get past Abraham, uh, the the opening chapters of Abraham, then uh, there's really big narrative sections. So we won't be spending quite as long going through them as we will through the first few chapters. Um, Famous term in the book of Genesis, the Hebrew word toledot, which is literally translated generations of, occurs exactly ten times in the book of Genesis. Five for primeval history, five for patriarchal history. Five introduced narratives, five introduced genealogies. 
Genesis is a finely crafted book. That's one thing you have to see. It's just not a random collection of stories. There is a pattern and a structure, and you see these things repeated in what we call the two halves of the book. Remember, the chapters were added later, so they don't exactly divide up in terms of chapters. Um, so very quickly, what is primeval history? Uh, the first 11 chapters give us the history of the world, uh, the early history of the world, prime, what we call primeval history. And it does so by relating five stories that all have the same structure. The stories are of the fall, Cain, sons of God marrying the daughters of man, the flood, and the tower of Babel. All five stories follow a fourfold pattern. You see this repeated in each of the stories. Sin, sin is described. Speech, there's a speech by God announcing the penalty for sin. Grace, God brings grace to the situation to ease the misery of sin. And then punishment, where God actually punishes the sin. And so we see that pattern repeated, particularly through the first 11 chapters, sin, speech, grace, punishment. And there is amazing grace in this book. It's amazing because through all the stories, there is this increasing avalanche of sin and the resulting punishment that necessarily becomes worse and worse, increasingly more severe, but there is always more grace. Adam and Eve are punished, but God graciously withholds the death penalty. Cain is banished from his family, but God graces him with a mark of protection. The flood comes, but God preserves the human race through Noah. And only in the case of the Tower of Babel does it seem that the element of grace is muted. We get to the end of the story, and there's this crying need for grace at the end of the Tower of Babel story. But that sets up the continuation of the second half of the book, patriarchal history and the grace for the Tower of Babel is given to us in the life and the story of Abraham. Patriarchal history is found in Genesis 12 through 50. And here Abraham receives the uh, gracious promise that through him, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. And this patriarchal period unfolds the fulfilling of that gracious promise. Despite the patriarch's repeated sins, God's promise stands. And so the salvation history of the uh, patriarchal narratives functions as the gracious answer to mankind's uh, scattering at the Tower of Babel. So you, you will see, hopefully, as we go through the book of Genesis, that Genesis is all about grace. It points out and highlights repeatedly sin, but then does that to show us grace. The Apostle Paul's words in Romans where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, pretty much sums up this major theme of the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis, far from being a faded page that's fallen to us from antiquity, breathes the grace of God. And that's one of the things you'll need to understand as we go through the book of Genesis, that there is tons and tons of grace in here. Uh, there's also tons and tons of sin, and it's easy to miss one or the other. You have to make sure that you get both. So I think we're going to have a great time, an amazing time, an exciting time, and a particularly challenging time, because I think our souls are going to get worked over 
by the book of Genesis, by this sin, speech, grace, punishment pattern of primeval history, and by this theme of where sin increases, grace abounds of patriarchal history. It's good medicine for our souls to understand that it was grace from the beginning in both primeval and patriarchal history, and it will always be grace. Genesis also provides us with this grand revelation of God's faithfulness. It recounts his faithfulness over and over and over again in the lives of the patriarchs. We see God remains faithful even when these people to whom the promises have been given they actually become the greatest threat to the fulfillment of the promises. You know, uh, Abraham becomes a threat to the promise that was given to Abraham. And then we see that repeated in the lives of of the patriarchs, in fact, of the lives of all of Israel's history through the Old Testament. But such is God's faithfulness that the sinful, disordered lives of these people can't stop, can't abort the promises. And that's the way God's always been. The New Testament puts it this way in 2 Timothy 2. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So faithfulness is a primary reality about God. So what I'm calling the Genesis reality. It's nothing new, but it means everything. In regard to man, Genesis is eloquent. Man is at the same time truly wonderful and truly awful. And the bulk of Genesis affirms our terrible sinfulness. Even the best of the patriarchs are helpless, hopeless sinners. It's clear that none of them ever come to merit salvation. So we understand that right from the beginning, salvation only comes through faith. Moses makes it clear that that's how Abraham, the greatest of the patriarchs, was saved, Genesis 15. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul alludes to this multiple times in the New Testament, speaking of Abraham, particularly in Romans and Galatians. He says in Romans 4, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Speaking of Abraham. So there's only one way that fallen humanity can be saved. And that's the Genesis way. By grace, through faith. A lot of times we think that's New Testament. Old Testament, you know, is just judgment and bad and, and hor horrible. But we discover that right in the beginning of Genesis, it's all about grace and faith. There's never been any other way to be saved since the fall. And so that's the big picture of what's in Genesis and what we're going to uh, cover in the next couple weeks or so. So, But there's another question that's constantly asked about this book in general, and we'll deal with it a little bit, but uh, asked about the first three chapters in particular, and that's what about Genesis and science? It's widely agreed that Christianity gave rise to modern science. The view of reality given in the first few chapters of Genesis was that there was a rational God who's created a rational world. What's more, he's a reliable God, and so it's reasonable to expect that his world 
would be reliable too. One of the earliest uh, scientists, Sir Francis Bacon, spoke of God giving us two books to read, the book of God's Word, the Bible, and the book of God's world, nature. And he said both are to be studied with diligence as both have been given to us by God. And you will find often, uh, if you go into the academic world, that you will find uh, many more believers in the hard sciences. Amen? They, uh, than in, in the other uh, fields, not to criticize the other fields, but the sciences in particular uh, seem to have a greater uh, collection of people of faith. Uh, Dr. Rodney Stark of Baylor University, see, something good from Baylor, uh, with, with Dave and Kathy, that's three. Um, no, Dr. Rodney Stark writes this. He says, the rise of science was not an extension of classical learning. It was the natural outgrowth of Christian doctrine. Nature exists because it was created by God. To love and honor God, one must fully appreciate the wonders of his handiwork. Moreover, because God is perfect, his handiwork functions in accord with immutable, which means unchanging, principles. By the full use of our God-given powers of reason and observation, we ought to be able to discover these principles. I think that's a remarkable thing that as you approach this subject of science in the Bible or science in Genesis, that there are a number of people who argue that science is a natural outgrowth of Christian doctrine. God gave us the world and we're studying the world that he has given us. But Genesis has huge scientific controversies. And uh, very disappointing to most of you, we're not going to get into them in great detail. Um, because I don't think that's the main point of the text. I think the main point of the text is about God, and so we're really going to focus there. We're not going to ignore it, but we're not going to spend uh, a large amount of time on it. Now, nearly 40 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a little book called Genesis and Space and Time. It's an excellent book. I don't often recommend it because Francis Schaeffer is not easy reading. Um, probably his book, True Spirituality, is the easiest of his books to read, and it's not easy. Um, his early books, I think, had no editor. Um, but I like Francis Schaeffer. He's basically smarter than everybody else. He subtitled his book, The Flow of Biblical History. And he argues that one of the ways to minimize the endless debates that cloud the discussion of Genesis is by asking, what is the least that Genesis 1 and the following chapters must be saying for the rest of the Bible to make sense? And I thought that was a brilliant question. I think what he's trying to get at, you know, to get past all the debates is there must be some irreducible minimum that these chapters are saying for the Bible to have any coherence or any logic at all. And that's really the focus I'm going to take over the next several sermons that will deal with these first uh, few chapters. So today we're going to look at some of what Genesis 1 tells us about God. And the first thing we see is that God simply is. God simply is. 
first blank there. In your outline, it says God simply is. The Bible doesn't begin with a long set of arguments to prove the existence of God. It doesn't begin with metaphors or analogies or any other literary device. It simply begins, in the beginning, God. Now, if you think about it, if man is the test of everything, this makes no sense at all because we want the right to judge the evidence and decide if there's enough there to determine if, in fact, God actually does exist. And thus, we become the judges of God. But the God of the Bible doesn't work like that. He simply is. He's not an object to evaluate. He is the creator who has made us, which changes the whole dynamic. If God is not part of the creation, he is not a creature, then that means that we are not creators, but in fact, we are the creatures. If someone asks, well, then where did God come from? The answer is that he is not dependent on anyone or anything else. He is self-existent. He has no cause. He just is, and he has always been. God was there in the beginning, and here the context means the beginning of time itself not some time within eternity. <coughs> In fact, later Moses uh, talks about God's presence at the beginning uh, at wonderfully poetic uh, form in Psalm 90. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So whichever way we look, to the vanishing points of the beginning or the end, God is there, having always been there. And that means that everything else in the universe, apart from God, is dependent upon God. Everything else in the universe, apart from God, is dependent upon God, which means that God made everything that is non-God. That's sort of a philosophical argument of saying he made everything other than himself. In the beginning, says Moses, God created the heavens and the earth. He uses actually very specialized vocabulary here. Created is only used of God in the Bible. Only God creates. In Genesis 1, the verb create is reserved only for the most crucial items in God's plan. The universe in verse 1, life in verse 21, and man in verse 27. Other than those three, it says God made it. It uses, actually uses a different Hebrew word. And the combination of the words the heaven and the earth are also very specialized. It's called a merism, which means a statement of two opposites to indicate the totality of everything in between. So that the sense of this first verse is, in the beginning, God created everything there is in all creation. Furthermore, God created everything out of nothing. The great theologian Gerhard von Rad, if you think Schaefer is hard reading, von Rad is worse. Um, Something with the Dutch theologians. I'm Dutch. Um, we can't translate Dutch. I don't know why. It, it always comes across its English words, but 
like in the Dutch sentence structure, and it's just, it's torture. Um, you know, <laughs> they're all brilliant guys, but it just doesn't work in English. It's like reading mud. Um, but anyway, one of the things he said that I, that I thought I understood was, it is correct to say that the verb create contains the idea of complete effortlessness. Complete effortlessness. It's not connected with any statement of the material. And this is pretty much what the Bible tells us. Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It was made ex nihilo out of nothing. And he made the heavens and the earth. Speaking of the heavens, Isaiah uh, tells us in Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes on high and see. You know, looking out into the sky, into space uh, at night. He says, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And throughout the book of Genesis, over and over again, we'll find things that sound very familiar. There's numerous verses, as I said, in the book of Revelation that draw from and depend on the book of Genesis. Revelation 4, 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Now the second half of Moses' introduction brings us back down to earth. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We got the Spirit of God banner today. Uh, this was fascinating as I was reading this. The perspective is from earth level now, and uh, from that view, earth is seen as essentially uninhabitable. And I actually looked this up, and the Hebrew of without form and void is a rhythmic term in Hebrew, and I love this, tohu vabohu. So in the Hebrew, the tohu vabohu means don't go there. It's empty, it's void, it's dark, nothing can live there, nothing can exist there, nothing can survive there. It's uh, as translated in English, without form and void. Much of Hebrew is written rhythmically and poetically, and often we lose that when we put it into English, because English is actually not a very poetic language. Um, but Eastern languages are very poetic. Um, and it's disordered place, it's empty, it's uh, uninhabitable. It's the very opposite of what earth will be after the six days of creation. And spread over this uninhabitable earth is darkness, serving to emphasize uh, the emptiness. You can't see in darkness. You don't know what's there. You're, you're left, in a sense, without knowledge. Darkness is impenetrable to man, but it's transparent to God. Uh, Psalm 139 says, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And so we know that God was there, and under the darkness and covering the earth is the deep, this primeval ocean. 
Now, Umberto Casuto, and there's a little footnote about him in there. I encourage you to read it. Very famous Hebrew commentator uh, on the first five books of the Bible, particularly Genesis, tells us, just as the potter, when he fit, wishes to fashion a beautiful vessel, takes, first of all, a lump of clay and places it upon his wheel in order to mold it according to his wish. So the creator first prepared for himself the raw material with a view to afterwards giving it order and life. It is this terrestrial state that is called tohu vabohu. I think that sounds cool. However, in contrast, above this uh, sort of primeval chaos floats indescribable beauty. It says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this verbal picture becomes clear, and actually the final psalm of Moses, he uses the same word near the end of Deuteronomy to describe an eagle that stirs up its nest that flutters over its young. We have seen it when a bird suspends itself in the sky by fluttering its wings. It's flying, but stationary. And the Spirit of God fluttered like a nurturing bird over the dark in preparation for day one, which we'll actually get to uh, down the road. And so the beauty and symmetry of the Bible's opening words are amazing. They become even clearer when we see that the word spirit in Hebrew is the same word for breath. God's creative breath hovered over the water, and on day one, his breath would come forth as speech, his word. Psalm 33 tells us, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, the spirit is to God's word as breath is to speech. So finally, you have this idea that God is, and he's there, and he's preparing everything. And it introduces us to this amazing idea that there is only one God, that there is only one God. This emerges very strongly in the Bible. God openly says, let there be this, let there be that. God made everything. He saw it was very good. The Bible makes it clear that when it talks about God, it's always talking about the same God. There is no other. Great uh, English Bible scholar uh, Derek Kidner pointed out, it's no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible because his name dominates the whole chapter. Elohim occurs 35 times in Genesis 1. So it catches your eye again and again. And his point is that the entire book of Genesis is about God from beginning to end, from first to last. And to read it any other way is to misread it. We need to keep that advice uh, up front, as, particularly as Genesis begins to focus on God the Son as the beginning and end of history. And yet even in this first chapter, there's a hint of complexity. Remarkably, the mystery of the Holy Trinity is embedded in the first three words of the text, which read, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. God, Elohim, is in the plural. Created, bara, is in the singular. So that God, plural, created, singular. 
And so on the one hand, the Bible teaches that God is one, that he's a unity. The Old Testament uh, famous verse, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the New Testament, we read 1 Corinthians 8, Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. On the other hand, it's equally as explicit that God is three persons. Great Commission, Matthew 28, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Bible affirms all three persons are active in creation. We see God and the Spirit mentioned here in Genesis 1, our passage this morning. We see God and the Son, both active in creation in John 1, which was our responsive reading this morning. And we see the Son active in creation uh, in Colossians 1. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Specifically written about Jesus. The writer of Hebrews also tells us, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So we meet right at the beginning, this awesome triune God at the beginning of the Bible. Well, why is there such an emphasis in the beginning of the Bible on God and who he is and what he's like and what he does? And I think to answer that question, we have to consider the world in which Moses wrote. Uh, Very simply, uh, one of the main purposes, I think, of Moses writing the Pentateuch is because he was in the business of clearly and unshakably and unequivocally putting down paganism. One of Moses' motivations for writing the first five books of the Bible was to put down paganism against the knowledge of the one true God. As we consider these opening lines, you have to remember the, uh, the history of Israel. Israel had just escaped when Moses was writing. <coughs> the oppressive polytheism of Egypt's temples and pyramids with both its solar and lunar gods. In Egypt, the pagan mythologies opposed the monotheism of Israel. Monotheism means belief in one God. And in opposition to having a single creator, the Egyptians taught polytheism, belief in many gods. And they shored up their beliefs with these elaborate myths of love affairs and reproduction among the gods or warfare, which marked out the heavens and the earth. And their priests annually mimed these myths, hoping that by reenacting them, they would create life. And this was not without effect. Many of God's people had succumbed to the lavish liturgies of the Nile. If any of you saw the animated movie, The Prince of Egypt, you remember the priests were sort of like 
magicians, and they had a lot of biblical scholars trying to get it right, and they came in and did all these amazing things. And if you remember, they told Moses, you're messing with the big boys now. And that's the way they looked at it. Moses was this sort of rank amateur who was, in a sense, taking on the world. They didn't like it. But Moses took them on. And these opening lines would forever establish a true understanding about God, the universe, and humanity. He begins with this radical and sweeping affirmation of monotheism, belief in one God, over polytheism. He speaks about the exclusivity of God. Lots of different ways throughout the first few chapters. We're going to look at that. But one example here. Uh, I just want to bring out, and we'll come to this in a couple of weeks, but in verse 16 of Genesis 1, it says, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Now, why didn't he just call them the sun and the moon? Because that's what they are. It's for the very good reason that those various cultures and languages of the day had words for the sun and the moon, which were also the names of gods. And not surprisingly, people worshipped them. We had the sun god and the moon god, solar and lunar gods. But by speaking of them as greater and lesser lights, Moses is actually attacking idolatry. He's letting people know that it's nonsense to think about the sun and the moon as gods. But they're nothing more than functional lights provided by the Creator. And at this, getting back to uh, the Bible and science, at this very early stage of Israel's history, we now have the basis for astronomy and the debunking of astrology. Now, the dominant creation myth of the ancient Near East was a Babylonian myth called the Enuma Elish. And many liberal scholars say Genesis just copied that that Moses didn't know any of this, God didn't give it to him, it didn't come from God, that there was this other work and he just uh, picked and chose the best parts to create his story. Of course, many think Moses didn't do it at all, but it was a collection of other pieces that all sort of got shoved together. But the Enuma Elish says that creation came about because of a battle between sea monsters. The sea creature Marduk fought with his mother, something that happens. The, who, her name was, uh, the, she was a sea creature as well, and her name was Tiamat. And he killed her with a sword and made the earth and sky from her two halves. Genesis says, not so. Whatever sea creatures are, that's all they are. Big fish, not gods. The one true God doesn't have to do battle with anything to bring about his creation. He's in sovereign control of everything. He is the king. He speaks, and his will is immediately enacted. And so the way Genesis is laid out is really attacking paganism and idolatry of the day. Moses' writing style is one of calm, majestic, measured grandeur. He doesn't even mention any of the pagan worldviews. He doesn't say, you know, take that, heathens, or anything like that. He just puts forward these very deliberate statements that pretty much just dismiss the pagan worldviews. 
And when he wrote, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. He's letting the world know, first God, then the universe, then the earth. End of discussion. I'm not debating it. I don't care what your other pagan views are. This is the way God said it happened. And on day one, the miracle will begin with God speaking light into existence and that light shining in the darkness. We have the darkness was hovering over the, uh, was over the face of the, uh, of the deep. So the very first thing he deals with is the darkness. And nobody less than the Apostle Paul made the application of this same truth to our lives, to our hearts. If you remember in 2 Corinthians, he said, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown it in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul connects Jesus to Genesis 1. And just as the Spirit of God hovered over the dark, so he does over the dark hearts of people, preparing them for the word of God that will make them into new creations in Christ. God created the heavens and the earth, the universe, and he can make you new as well. In the beginning was God, in the end will be God, Genesis is about God, and Genesis is about grace. And may grace fill us as we study this book of beginnings. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have made all things out of nothing. You were in the beginning, and your spirit hovered over the face of the deep. And in the person of your Son, you have spoken the world into being. Grant that we would know you better through the book of Genesis, which is your word, and grant that we would believe it and live by it 